electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Claire Odumodi. Today on our podcast. Know your enemy. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Eight hopefuls debate. It felt to me like the first internet debate. Republican candidates in the first primary debate of the 2024 cycle. The hits, the misses, and the elephant not in the room. Our Eamon Javers reports. This was a multi-screen moment in American politics. And the CEO story so good, it's coming to a streaming screen near you. The remarkable escape of Nissan executive Carlos Ghosn. I literally binged the whole, I couldn't stop, I couldn't stop watching. The director that had Andrew glued to his screen, James Jones and his new docuseries. Headlines all over the world, one of the world's most successful business executives smuggled out of Japan in a music box. You know, that has Hollywood movie written all over it. Plus, the chip maker soaring. You said NVIDIA. NVIDIA. Well, which is it? However you say it, a 422% increase in net income is not bad for NVIDIA. Tech investor and venture capitalist Bradley Tusk on the deep reserves of chip demand. For as long as every startup founder feels the need to show you how they're using AI, and every public company now feels the need to put it in a press release in some way, that'll drive demand for a long time. All that today and so much more. It's Thursday, August 24th. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Joe Kernan. Kelly Evans is hanging out with us for the next three hours. Post-debate, Becky is off. Nice to see you. Uh, and got, you watched, I can't believe I watched, watched, watched to the bitter end. I watched to the bitter end. I watched weird. all the way till Sean Hannity began his program. <laughs> no, your enemy. Room. No, your Which en- you've been waiting for. No, your enemy. Keep your friends close <laughs> and your enemies close. And your enemies closer. You know what? It, it I, saw, actually, I, I waited up until maybe the first 20 minutes. And you know what? Um, I know a lot of people thought it was great. I, it, it got great. me in the mood. For, no, thought it was interesting. It got me in the mood for bed. It did. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm with you. There were like it got it a got couple of prog- it got progressively more provocative as it, it, it went did? on. Okay. And then, of course, at the same time, you were talking about it. Sort of a I had a, a dual screen, simul screen thing going with where, uh, where I was watching. You know, Donald Trump talk so about the, whether Jeffrey Epstein had been killed, <laughs> right. since that right. was literally the second or first question. And by the way, he did. I don't know why Tucker fixed it. So <laughs> Trump did not take the bait. You know, we have Vivek out here. Everyone taking the bait on every every 9/11, and I, I thought it was fascinating. He like multiple times he kept so pressing bizarre. him on I, this. I, I can't believe I, I didn't see that, but that would be the first time in like history he did question. not take the bait. He it did. was literally. He I think it was literally the first or second question yeah. of, the, of the whole interview, and I thought to myself, <laughs> "Where am I? What is going on here?" <laughs> No. So anyway, in, in, rela- in, in what's t- what's Tucker's angle on why, why you asked Trump about Epstein? Oh, because it if they would kill bill. Epstein, who the people, the the deep state, the establishment, okay, yeah. they might try to kill him. He twice oh. asked him flat out, don't you think they're going to kill you, basically? 
and both but times this Trump is was Prigozhin like, Day. I, I, that's I, what happens in autocracies. People I, kill each other. I, Twice he asked him flat I, out. I don't know. That's Talking about autocracies. Let's bring in Eamon Javers with the highlights. Eamon, what, what did we leave out so far? Because it was it was fun, and I we had both screens going and back and forth. It was it felt to me like the first kind of internet debate. There was my TV wasn't involved. I had an iPad and I had an iPhone going. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, we used to talk in the old days about the split screen moments in American politics. Well, this was a multi-screen moment in American politics, and it was a contentious first outing for the Republican field in Milwaukee last night as candidates pounded each other and jockeyed for position. Even as you say, the man who far and away leads the pack appeared in a separate interview on Twitter instead of on the debate stage. The early part of the debate was dominated, though, by talk of the economy. Former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley focused on the issue of the national debt and who is to blame for it. You have Ron DeSantis, you've got Tim Scott, you've got Mike Pence, they all voted to raise the debt and Donald Trump added $8 trillion to our debt and our kids are never gonna forgive us for this. And so at the end of the day, you look at the 2024 budget, Republicans asked for $7.4 billion in earmarks. Democrats asked for $2.8 billion. So you tell me who are the big spenders. I think it's time for an accountant in the White House. And businessman Vivek Ramaswamy uh, really introduced himself to a national audience here and laid out his vision for the economy. This isn't that complicated, guys. Unlock American energy, drill, frack, burn coal, embrace nuclear. Put people back to work by no longer paying them more to stay at home. Reform the U.S. Fed, stabilize the U.S. dollar, and go to war. The only war that I will declare as U.S. president will be the war on the federal administrative state that is the source of those toxic regulations acting like a wet blanket on the economy. Meanwhile, where was former President Trump? Well, he was on Twitter, or X as it's known now, in a lengthy pre-recorded interview uh, with Tucker Carlson. He explained his decision, though, not to participate in this debate last night. I'm leading by 50 and 60 points. And, you know, some of them are at one and zero and uh, two. And I'm saying, do I sit there for an hour or two hours, whatever it's going to be, and uh, get harassed by people that shouldn't even be running for president? So it's not clear now if Trump is going to participate in the next debate. That one is scheduled uh, for September on Fox. We will next see him at the Fulton County Jail in Georgia later today, where he is expected to surrender in the wake of his indictment on charges related to his efforts to overturn the 2020 election, guys. So the former president dominating the headlines, certainly today, uh, and we'll see whether these other candidates can rally uh, some momentum out of this debate last night and take him on. Back over to you. I, you know, Eamon, I didn't think that the Trump-Tucker thing would be able to kind of elbow its way into the room, but um, I, I found it a little, in some ways, more compelling than what was going on at the debate. I'll be very curious. The, I don't know if we're going to be able to get any kind of um, viewership stats. And this was basically a pre-taped video that was just uploaded. So I don't know how you compare yeah. or try to figure out what kind of an I guess the ultimate impact comes down to the impact at the polls. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see exactly what kind of numbers this thing got and sort of how that affects the debate that was happening simultaneously. If you listen to the crowd that was in the room, though, very supportive of the former president, Donald Trump, even as the candidates themselves on the stage were split, right? You had Vivek Ramaswamy up there saying that he thought that uh, Donald Trump was the best president in the history of the United States. And you had other candidates up there, including Chris Christie of New Jersey, Mike Pence, the former vice president, suggesting that Donald Trump is unfit to hold the office of the presidency. Whether or not you believe 
that the criminal charges are right or wrong. The conduct is beneath the office of President of the United States. One question I would have uh, liked to have seen maybe asked of Vivek Ramaswamy is, if you believe that Donald Trump is the best president in the history of the country and Donald Trump is running again, why are you in this race? You know, the question becomes, why run against him if he's so good? Uh, that left unanswered on the debate stage last night, and presumably at least some of the candidates on this stage uh, are running for the vice presidential nomination. If Donald Trump should get the Republican nomination, there's always that VP slot to consider. Mike Pence, presumably, not going to yeah. get it again, guys. Eamon, in the world of, of Moneyball, given that, that so many of these folks who were on stage were desperate to raise money last night, some of whom or even including their, their website. If you waited till the very end, the, by the, the website way, they, and they, asking they had their website address. They literally they asked, around for that uh, you know. Um, Who did you donate to? They, yep. they, they asked specifically for donations. How quickly will we see that? Um, clearly, DeSantis is at the top in terms of total numbers between direct dollars to him plus that super PAC. So he's over $100 million right now. And then you get down to Vivek Ramaswamy. I think he's loaned his, his campaign something million. like $15 million. Yeah. And, there's a couple of million dollars on either end of that, um, and, and, and somewhere in between is, is basically everybody else, and maybe some of them are lower than that. How quickly will we know in terms of that, that might actually be the, the vote, if you will, on, on who won that, that, that debate last night? Yeah, look, we'll see some of those numbers later on today because a lot of these candidates will announce, right, exactly how much they raise if they feel like it's a big number. We're in an era now where this happens within minutes and hours. Candidates pounce on these viral moments and try to capture all those online contributions where people just respond emotionally and click send. Uh, they were all doing that last night. Every candidate was sending out their favorite clips from the moment. So I think uh, this is one of those ones where you have to capture lightning in a bottle very quickly now with fundraising yeah. online uh, so, in order to, to sort of make the moment. Who's going to be first to, to drop out? Because there's a lot of pressure from mainstream Republicans saying, look, this is not, uh, you know, if, if you want, if you have the general election in, in sight, you guys got to narrow this down quickly. But no one's probably going to. Yeah. Well, they're look, all going to carry it on. It looked right? difficult for Chris Christie. Chris Christie picking the anti-Trump lane, that seemed very difficult. He's getting a lot they of pushback right from the, the crowd, beginning. which really liked Donald Trump, yep, yep. booing him right at the beginning. And Ron DeSantis really needed a breakout moment. His campaign he has did been not. Uh, slagging lately. Uh, he didn't have the breakout moment that I think maybe his campaign was looking for. Uh, so there are some signs of, of trouble in some of these campaigns already. Uh, but Vivek Ramaswamy, I mean, really introduced himself on a national stage and sort of took ownership of that pro-Trump lane. If you, if you like Trump, but He's, you can't have him for various legal reasons, he sort of maybe you'll the, try this new guy. He stole the show by baiting everybody in a sort of a unique way. I mean, he made it all about him by getting everybody to... You're all politicians. And that's, come to him. And, and that's the Donald Trump... Andrew, but that I, is well, the, the Donald Trump theory a, of politics. All strategy. attention is good, whether it's negative or positive. Right. right? We'll the keys All attention is good, whether it's negative or positive. That's, what, that's how Trump right. put himself at the center of the Republican Party, and that's how Vivek Ramaswamy put I mean, himself at the center of that Trump debate. Trump on Twitter time. right now, it's 146 million views. What? I put that in air quotes. Yeah. Uh, meaning right. if you look at Tucker's, if you right. look at that video, it's, it's capturing 146-something. Yeah. That could be 146 people who have also scrolled by it, meaning but I, I think you, if you have to, if, if you look if at it, it auto for, plays for one, two seconds, yeah, yeah. one second, two seconds, 
Yep. So then there's always going to be the debate right. between how are we ever right. going to know? Maybe Fox gets several million people who actually watch. Well, I watched it all two, all, all two hours. I did not watch right. this for all two so hours. So the likes of which we've never seen. He loves to say that. <laughs> Cheese will be next. Coming up. Shocking. Spectacular. Ginormous. NVIDIA's huge quarter, a blowout beat for the chip maker, a big hiring opportunity for Taiwan, and the seemingly never-ending demand for the picks and shovels of the AI movement. Investor Bradley Tusk joins us. How long will I have to live this, to read the headline, NVIDIA shares slumped on a glut of AI chips? I got a little while for that w still. Will that ever happen? Eventually, sure, of course. SquawkPod will be right back. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. We're back. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Up and Andrew, Q. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Joe Kernan and Kelly Evans, who's been hanging out with us. Becky's off today. Uh, we got a lot of news, uh, including the NVIDIA news. Do we have a definitive? Is it NVIDIA or NVIDIA? Because you just said NVIDIA and I heard NVIDIA. Chris, is it? Is it NVIDIA or NVIDIA? Someone told me it was off of the Latin for envy, which I guess is NVIDIA, but also envy meaning next version. So maybe it's... If it's for envy, they, they, there are some envious some heads people are out there. Maybe it should be envy. I don't know. That's I just wonder. Sure. It's up to you. It's a potato, potato thing. I don't All know. I know is a potato spelled with an E. I'm not even sure. Now, now I'm questioning how I said it. I'm just wondering. I'll, I'll said, go either way. I said NVIDIA or NVIDIA? Said you NVIDIA. said NVIDIA. NVIDIA. Well, which is it? Did, uh, is that a mistake that you... I don't know. Now uh, whatever you, you decide, I'm going to go with. I'm very confused. Whatever. The old journalism trick is you call the company and see how they answer the phone. Or you right. say it one way the first time, another and then way let the second time. Or, or, or second both. way, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Our top uh, business story this morning, NVIDIA shares rising after, I don't know, what do you call that quarter? It says blowout here. I think that's overused and doesn't, uh, doesn't do it justice. So what would you call it? A quarter the likes of which we've never seen. Christina Partsinevelis joins us now. That's a Trump quote. Uh, uh, Christina joins us now with more. I don't know. You give me give me a hyperbole that uh, a hyperbolic um, uh, adjective. Stupendous. Yeah. Stupendous. Uh, um, um, shocking. Shocking. Spectacular. Uh, okay. Ginormous. I'll get my thesaurus out later. Oh. <laughs> well, it's true. When the whole one world wants your product, you can't make it fast enough. And so NVIDIA, like you said, every single adjective we can use, blew past earnings and revenues expectations, posted the largest quarterly revenue growth since 2010, and managed to guide 
$3 billion above estimates to $16 billion for Q3. This massive uptick in sales, though, this past quarter was driven by graphic processing units, those GPUs, thousands of which are stitched together to train large language models like ChatGPT. And that's why NVIDIA's data center business, which includes those same AI chips, grew 141% quarter over quarter. I know everybody's talking about the year over year. Last year was pretty bad, but quarter over quarter is quite uh, quite a feat. The majority of the data center sales, aka those AI chips, came from the United States, but demand from China was within historical norms. This is according to the CFO. And as Kelly pointed out late last night on Twitter, because she doesn't sleep, <laughs> that's even with U.S. export restrictions in place. Here's CEO Jensen Wong on the balance between supply and demand. Our demand is tremendous. We are significantly expanding our production capacity. Supply will substantially increase for the rest of this year and next year. In other words, assuring investors, supply won't hamper growth. NVIDIA relies on Taiwan Semiconductor to make those GPU chips, and it's not easy to ramp up production so quickly. But for now, it's actually overcoming those constraints more quickly than anticipated. And that was a huge boon for the earnings last night. Last quarter, though, we said we had never seen such a blowout earnings report like this. And here we are three months later saying the same thing maybe using different adjectives this time. Let me pick up on this this China thing. A lot of people are making the point, okay, are they doing this without China or in some ways because of China? Because so they can get, you know, the lower, the A100s. So they're they're trying to stockpile as much as they can right now. And are they double ordering and and doing all these things that, you know, and and he seemed to dismiss that on the call saying, I I think it was something to the effect of even if we had no China orders, our backlog would be, you know, a year out or, or something to that effect. But that feels like one of the questions is how much of this is this Chinese kind of trying to get what they can if restrictions become more severe. If we were to use previous quarters, it was always around 20 to 25 percent of total revenue. Mm. And according to the CFO on the call, it was the same amount of money coming from China. So it seems like it hasn't jumped up dramatically. Overall, you're seeing everyone increased orders, hyperscalers, 50 totally. percent of the data center revenues. So to your point about the double ordering, they wouldn't give us the details about that because then that's going to they're not they're never going to give us details it, about that, unfortunately. So we're only going to see that uh, a few quarters from now, if that's right. going to be the case. And it probably is the case because they are trying to front run a lot of orders ahead of any type of additional U.S. export restrictions. And then the minute you said Taiwan Semiconductor, I I thought about Kyle Bass from yesterday, who was a strident China hawk who said 2020, it's not 2050 when they reacquire Taiwan, China. It's, he thinks next year, 2020. It's not not just the hawk saying that. And with, with the trouble China's having, that may be closer than we thought that they do something like that and then what does that mean they can't steal our they better not mess up our supply of of uh chat gpt chip huh we better we should have a chips act and bring it back here if someone if we had a smart president right it's chips act they're working on giving out the money that they said a lot last night that that needed to happen yeah i don't think i heard smart but, yeah. uh, but to your point, China, if it, it, you know, China does take over Taiwan, it, they would still need to keep the Taiwanese workers in there because it is advanced stuff. You can't just throw in some people that have worked on right. other 
equipment from China. We're not Hence the give reason us why any. that is the same argument that Taiwan Semi is making, which is why they're bringing in Taiwanese workers, much to the dismay of American workers yes. in Arizona. Right. Taiwan, because I was at TSMC a few weeks ago, they said they have these really high-tech ASML machines that are worth over a million dollars. Unfortunately, American workers, according to them, don't know how to use those machines. American workers are saying no. Why don't you, that's not the case at all. Uh, we should we can stop learn. their visas from coming in. Yeah. So this is a huge debate that's going on that's at the Arizona point. plant, which is already delayed right. because of the lack of American skilled talent. It's a great point, and it all relates. So you can't. So if it happens, right. not only Nvidia, a lot of companies are screwed. Well, I yeah. remember when they bought our bacon producer. I was worried. Sifia <laughs> right? stepped in. But thank God. About ASML. That's the other one. That's the Dutch company. Yeah, in the Dutch company. If anyone ever takes over the Netherlands, we've got a real problem. They have a huge. I'm a not joking. Maybe that would be the lower they have hanging. A, a full monopoly. Forget a full monopoly. That's the whole business. Is that actually it's However, even more of that than it is even? What? To your point, Andrew, that's actually not as bad as TSMC because those equipment pieces are so expensive that you're buying one maybe in your life, your company's lifetime or maybe two right. versus TSMC. You're using them on a constant basis because they're producing your actual chip. Mm. So that is the difference where I would put a higher emphasis on TSMC that's than ASML. Christina, thank you. Joining us right now to talk about NVIDIA's uh, dominance in the AI field as well as how it can affect AI startups. Bradley Tusk, CEO of Tusk Ventures. Good morning to you. Hi. So, I mean, it sounds like this is like a runaway train in, in, a, in a, the best way possible for them. Yes. Are you of the view that, that we're going to be talking about this company as the leader in this for the next 5, 10, 15 years? Or are there others that catch up? Or is this a I mean, hype cycle? What is this? It, it's... It's not a hype cycle because AI is definitely real. And NVIDIA, as, as the CEO said, has been working on this for a very long time. So it's not like they just got lucky that they were in the right place at the right time. It's not like Arizona Ice-T putting the word blockchain in their name and the stock going up for a couple of days. Um, but Amazon's got a product, so other people are going to get in this game because it is a really lucrative field. I mean, part of it also, to me, as an early-stage tech investor, is really how are startups using AI? So I can't get a pitch these days from a founder that the words AI aren't plastered all over the deck, all over the meeting, everything else. And the reality is, at least from our perspective, AI is a tool to help get you from point A to point B. The notion of AI being its own category, yeah, there's a couple of things like ChatGPT, but basically you've got to show why it makes the product meaningfully better. And therefore, do you say to yourself, this is a business that's going to be it's going to benefit the incumbents, or actually, are there going to be startups that are going to change the change the game? I think there can be. So, like a couple that, that we've invested in, one's called Elaborate, and they take those lab reports that you get at the doctor that are totally incomprehensible, and use AI to make it so that you can actually understand what your glucose is without having to Google like 0.79, is that good or bad? Um, the Contract Network is a company that uses AI so that as you're writing a contract, all of the standard provisions and all of the right. market comps show up right away. So there definitely I'm are. Say, though, it feels but, like that's a feature, not a product. Yeah, I, that's, like, and that, that's my point. Don't you think the incumbents at some point, you know, Enzo Labs are one of these guys who normally provides these reports that are incomprehensible. Don't they just use AI themselves to make the report actually in English? If they can't, look, that's always when you're investing in early stage tech companies. In theory, the incumbent can always do it. And what we're usually betting on is that they have become too slow, too bureaucratic, too stagnant to be able to do it. And ultimately, they will choose to buy the company we invested in rather than doing it How themselves. long will I have to live this, to read the headline, uh, NVIDIA shares slumped on a glut of AI chips? Uh, I think a little while for that. W still. Will that ever happen? 
eventually, sure, of I mean, course. people are, are loading up on them now because they're, they're going to use them. I mean, yeah. and, and we notoriously, chips go through these periods. I mean, right. more commodity, like memory, obviously, but will it ever happen? In I this mean, there's, uh, eventually, yes, but there's going to be for a while, at least what I'm seeing anecdotally is, for as long as every startup founder feels the need to show you how they're using AI, and every public company now feels the need to put it in a press release in some way, that'll drive demand for a long time. But yeah, I mean, the market will effectively meet the capacity. Will there ever be uh, an AMD passing an Intel with with something with, with NVIDIA? Um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. There will be? Someone uh, will figure it out. Uh, maybe. I mean, I, I think, look, I'm generally, as someone who bets on early stage startups, I think people are always going to figure it out, right? And, you know, generally. But it took speaking, 10 years. Right. They got a 10 year head start. Uh, yeah, and that's why I'm pretty confident in them for now, but eventually right. will there be real competition? Of course. I just can't figure out whether AI unto itself is, is right. still a feature and not a product, and whether actually it's a defense, meaning. It's not that you actually get more market share out of it ultimately. I mean, they are for, for the purposes of yeah, chips, for that. but on the software no. side, that it's actually a defensive business to, either pr to protect what Microsoft already has or protect what Google already has, rather than something that somehow leapfrogs into some other place. I, can't, I still can't see how it's as transformational as the internet was to business. I just don't see how AI is as transformational to, across the board to every business. I mean, where I think, I, I think you're right, every business. I think there are some use cases that could be truly transformational. So you saw that story about the woman who had a stroke, who hasn't been able to speak. All of a sudden, AI is able to take what's, you know, the brain waves and translate that into speech in some way. Or in California, they're now able to spot right. wildfires two weeks before they were able to before because of using AI. Or, you know, they, they, AI helps figure out how to remove carbon from the atmosphere in a way that we can't figure out right now. So I think that there are going to be use cases for it, but I don't think it's everyday business. I think it's applications of certain types of science. How much of it, though, is it going to be about savings, meaning savings because people are going to not be needed in the same way? Yeah, I mean, look, there's always that, whether it's it's the horse and buggy to the car or the internet or now but AI. You don't, believe, you don't believe that this is a transformation? I don't think it's, I don't think it's coming to Mars. So for example, we're investors in Kodiak. It's an uh, automated trucking company. Um, AI definitely can help make trucking safer and better, but there's a desperate shortage of truckers, right? AI is not in any way moving trucking sort of off of the off of the truckers off the roadmap. It just sort of helps meet the need and the demand and, and make the job safer. In terms of the models themselves, though, yep. I mean, obviously, there's, there's, there's open AI, there's right. Anthropic, there's Inflect, there's a whole bunch of them. It seems to me that not only do you need talent at those places, the real actual benefit is the scale of capital in yeah. terms of raising capital. Yeah, for sure. Um, and look, it's interesting that the AI kind of wave is hitting at a time in venture capital where activity is actually relatively low. There are very few exits, whether M&A or IPOs. Liquidity is really low. So compared to the amount of money that got thrown at like Web3 a couple of years ago, which is really nothing compared to what AI could potentially be, um, you haven't at least seen this insane glut, but given that markets always sort of go up and right. down, that will change. Um, final question, maybe a curveball, but I'm yeah. sure you focused on it as a venture guy. The SEC has some new disclosure rules yes. uh, that have just come out uh, that are going to change private equity, yep. change venture capital for, for very long, for, I mean, for as long as I can remember, the rule, there weren't real, really rules. Right. Is this a good thing at, at, from a venture capital perspective? I know there's some, there's been yeah. pushback, but You've been well, an my, my CFO this, and, and the accounting team aren't particularly happy about it. Right. Um, look, I would say this, you know, to the extent that this SEC talks about 
wanting to help small businesses, um, smaller funds like mine, it becomes a really big additional compliance cost, whereas a giant fund is already doing this. And so I would say that it sort of locks in the market position of the entrenched interests. Bradley Tells, thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. Great to see you. Next, on SquawkPod, the dramatic escape of Nissan CEO Carlos Ghosn, with the documentarian who got Ghosn himself to speak out, James Jones. He could have gone down in history as the greatest automobile executive of our age, and instead he'll be remembered as a man who escaped in a box. Plus, we hear from the former Green Beret Michael Taylor, the man who orchestrated the actual escape. Take us back to being in the airport as you are literally pushing him, Carlos Ghosn, in a music box past the security guards. You have footage of it, actually, as it's happening. What did you think could happen if you were caught in that moment? From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to Squawk Pod with Andrew, Joe, and Kelly Evans, where we're diving into the business drama so dramatic it's coming to Apple TV. Gone's biggest problem now is judicial system doesn't forget. When you say there is a crime, you say, okay, who is the victim? If there is a victim into the whole story, it's me. Apple TV Plus set to premiere the new series Wanted, the escape of Carlos Ghosn showcasing the CEO turned fugitive's professional journey, shocking arrest and daring escape from Japan. Mike Taylor, the architect of Ghosn's getaway in an instrument case, and Ghosn himself are featured in the film. Joining us right now is James Jones, director of uh, the series. Michael Taylor is with us as well, former Green Beret. Uh, Good morning to both of you. Uh, I have to admit, I watched the I got a copy of the screener thinking I would watch it over, I don't know, a week or two or something like that. And James, I literally binged the whole, I couldn't stop, I couldn't stop watching. And I couldn't stop watching Mike, who is uh, such an instrumental part, obviously, of this uh, remarkable series. Um, Let's just go back in time for a moment, James, just help set the table for those who may not know the Carlos Ghosn story. What what interested you in this from the get-go? I mean, I think the moment I became really aware in depth of the Carlos Ghosn story was when he escaped in a box. You know, his headlines all over the world. One of the world's most successful business executives smuggled out of Japan in in a music box. And, you know, that has Hollywood movie written all over it. But what was enticing to me as a kind of journalistic filmmaker was that the more you scratch away at this story, the darker and more twisted it becomes. And so it felt like the kind of story that spending like a couple of years of our lives digging into it uh, would, you know, pay off rewards and end up with a good, you know, a great series. Before I get to Mike, I have one big question for you, James. And I I know I think you're trying to leave it to the viewer to decide. But at the very top of the segment, uh, we showed a clip where Carlos Ghosn himself talked about himself as a victim. And I'm so curious what you actually think yourself. Was he a victim? There's points in this where you clearly paint him as potentially such. 
But there's other points at which he may not be a victim at all. Yeah, I mean, we posed the question, victim or villain, the final episode. And I would urge the viewer to watch and make up their mind. But, you know, ultimately, maybe it's not either or. And there's certainly points in the series when you see what he went through in Japan, there's no doubt there was a conspiracy to take Carlos Ghosn down. And for that period when he was in prison, treated horrifically, he was a victim. What's more complicated is that during that investigation, they had then stumbled across much, much more serious allegations against Carlos Ghosn of proper corruption. And I think until he goes and faces trial in France or Japan, he can't really dismiss that label of, of villain. Mike, let's talk about your own journey, because um, it was a wild one, uh, both in terms of uh, helping Carlos Ghosn, planning his extraction, getting him out, and then yourself going to prison with your son for doing so in the most horrific circumstances. But take us back to the beginning of that, which is, how did this happen for you? Um, how did you decide to do this? And what did you think was at risk when you did? Well, I originally got a telephone call from uh, a mutual contact of Carlos and I and, and his wife, Carol, and asked me to help out. because I've done this before for many people. Uh, people who are abducted, taken overseas that we've had warrants for and custody issues. Um, so this, this, in effect, wasn't anything new. Um, the planning of it and the operation was very smooth. Uh, it didn't take that long, about six months. Uh, the operation just went off, you know, perfect. Um, and during that planning of it, we researched if there was a violation of law and all the, the legal counsels that we've uh, spoken to and did the research and, and whatnot all said it was not a violation of law because bail jumping in Japan is not a violation. It's, uh, there's no violation of law if you bail jump in Japan. So aiding and abetting, if you will, somebody's jumping bail is not a crime. Um, the fact of the matter is, it's only a crime if you break somebody out of an actual custody situation like a jail or a prison cell or the back of a police car. Then it's a violation of law. But Carlos was out on bail, so it was no violation of law. And then it turned into the issue of, um, you know, Japan requesting extradition and uh, it was Trump and Pompeo that uh, sold us out and extradited us. And it wasn't for the interest of international justice. So it was clearly political. And, uh, you know, they knew very well we would be tortured. We were there. And in fact, we were tortured. Before we get to that, because that unto itself in the series is, is a remarkable story. Um, just take us back to being in the airport um, as you are literally pushing him, Carlos Ghosn, in a music box uh, past the security guards. And I, as, and you were described, you describe it in the series and you, and they show it because you have, you have footage of it actually as it's happening. And you have Carlos Ghosn also narrating that part of it. But as that is happening, what did you think could happen if you were caught in that moment? Well, I had done the vulnerability assessment of it and I was very confident 100% confident, actually, that we would not be exposed and it wouldn't be. There was no locks. Locks generally make people look like, oh, there must be something important in there or, or, or whatnot, so let's open it up. I didn't lock the box. It was, all they had to do is flip the switch and open a, the lid, but they didn't do that. And their standard operation policies are so rigid 
that they don't deviate whatsoever. They're very robotic in that sense. So it was really a no-brainer going out that way. Um, I don't want to give away too much of the ending of this, but one of the major turns for me as a viewer, Mike, was this what seemed like fabulous relationship that you had uh, with Carlos and, and somebody that you believed in, and it seemed like you were doing this in part because you believed in him. Of course, you went to prison, then, and then it appears that your relationship changed very distinctly. Well, you know, my son ended up spending 30 months in prison, and he was essentially doing search engine optimization. He had nothing to do with the operation. Uh, in fact, he wasn't even in the country when I pulled Carlos out. So again, it was a political thing. Um, you, you know, of course, any parent doesn't want their their child punished, especially for something they didn't do. But the uh, the relationship itself took an interesting turn. Um, you know, I've spent uh, about $842,000 out of pocket just for legal fees, and there's still several million more that need to be paid. Um, so that, that's still uh, that's still and, an And Carlos period. is not supporting you? Well, I still have those legal fees that are outstanding. We can say that part. But has he paid for paid you? Has have you been paid for the for the work and the costs of all of this? I mean, putting even aside the legal fees, but the legal fees unto themselves, I would have thought that a family of, of means like this, given what you did for him, and that you would have gotten money. I mean, you you would have been paid to do this. Yeah, uh, if it was me, I would have made sure that the person that saved my life was squared away. But yeah, I still have outstanding legal fees. Do you think he's a victim? Do I think he's a victim? I think he was a victim initially because they arrested him uh, initially based on what limited information I know. They arrested him um, on a uh, on a made up account and then they dug deeper based off of them being able to hold him and get warrants for his additional information so what's the, the that old saying and the, the lawyers talk about the the apple of a poison tree is no good something to that effect that's that's essentially what i think happened here but um you know i think the documentary will will show the viewers and the viewers will ultimately will be able to make up their own mind as to if he's a, a victim or a villain James, uh, that's how you set up the set up the film, and so let's let's go there. How does this end? And and there's when I say how does this end, you might have to do a second series about how this ends. Right now, he is free, sort of. Yeah, he's in a large prison called Lebanon. You know, he lives comfortably. He lives in a very lovely house. He's with his wife. They're very much in love, and he's comfortable. But I think the thing that eats away at him, apart from not jetting the world in a private jet, is that his reputation is forever tarnished. You know, he could have gone down in history as the greatest automobile executive of our age. And instead, he'll be remembered as a man who escaped in a box. And in terms of what happens next, I think he lives the rest of his days in, in Lebanon. I don't think he'll risk going to France to stand trial. I don't think he can bear the thought of spending even, even another day uh, in prison. So. You know, I could be proved wrong. This story has proved, you know, has thrown up a lot of unexpected twists and turns. So never say never. But my personal guess is that he spends the rest of his days in Lebanon and the red notice hangs over him. James, I could talk uh, I could talk to both of you uh, for hours about this. I kind of want to, frankly, having uh, watched watched the series. Uh, congratulations on the series. It does premiere on Apple Plus uh, tomorrow. Mike, thank you for joining us this morning. And uh, again, thanks to both of you. That's the pod for today. 
Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Catch them weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern and get the best parts of our TV show by following Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Have a lovely day and let's do this again tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 